And welcome, everybody, to another episode of Smart Money Circle. I'm your host, Adam Sarhan. With me today is a very special guest, Mark Matson with Matson Money, who approximately manages uh, $8.1 in assets under management. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Adam. It's great to be here. Uh, so, Mark, I always like to begin. Can you tell us your story and how you got involved in the business? Yeah. Um, you know, my, my dad was an insurance agent uh, when I was born. Uh, and, um, we, we actually, I was born in the Hills of West Virginia. And then well, by the time I was five, we moved to Cincinnati and he became a financial planner and started helping people with investments. And so I always grew up idolizing my dad, uh, and always wanted to be like him. And, um, I went to Miami university in Oxford, Ohio, got a degree in finance and accounting, uh, put my shingle out, you know, at 21. Nice. And, um, he said, you know, be coachable, do everything I tell you, and you might have a shot of making it. Um, and so uh, I really was out of respect for my dad. And uh, he really built into me books like Think and Grow Rich, um, Maxwell Maltz's um, Psycho-Cybernetics. You know, other kids were collecting baseball cards and I was studying, um, you know, personal wealth creation tools <laughs> at a right. very young age. I love it. So uh, what are some takeaways from those books from your formidable years that you, you feel have really just hit home? Uh, I think Think and Grow Rich uh, probably was one of the seminal works. And he I think first gave that to me when I was about 12 years old. Uh, and some of the things that really stick with that is, is never backing down uh, and never taking no for an answer. Right. Uh, and, keep, and to keep persevering when other people would end up stopping. Mm-hmm. Um, the, other, the other thing I think is key in, the, in that book talks about something he calls a mastermind about creating a vision and then getting, uh, create an ecosystem. He didn't call it an ecosystem back in the language of his day, right. but create an ecosystem where you're bringing in all the people that can create a dynamic supportive structure uh, that can, uh, with the synergy, create something that was unimaginable. Um, then also the, the idea of becoming just a true entrepreneur, right. um, someone who creates a business that has value uh, and grows separate from just hard work. Right. Like that was the part of the problem with the financial planning model was that it was 100% based on commissions. Uh, so there was a lot of heavy lifting. There was a lot of selling. And if you did that model for 30 years, you'd have a high paying job, but you'd have a lot of stress and anxiety and no company value. Uh, and so that's one of the things that's, that I, I think is wrong with the traditional financial planning model, commission-based and not... It, inevitably not really in the best interest of the client or the advisor. Understood. So Mark, can you tell us a little about your investment strategy, please? Well, my investment strategy comes from uh, a world of bad experiences. (laughs) Um, I think one of the things wrong with politicians and many leaders these these days is that they fail to be able to deal and talk about their failures. Right. And I think there's great instructive insight based on ability to look at your life and look at failures uh, or at least when outcomes didn't match what you, you know, had wanted. So when I went to work for my dad with, with the broker dealer at the time, we were taught three key ways of managing money. One was stock picking. Right. Either we would do it or at the time we'd have a mutual fund manager do it for us. One was market timing, trying to get in and out of various markets at the right time, presumably before they went up and then getting out when, you know, when they, before they started going down. Right. Uh, And then if you didn't know how to do those things yourself, then you would get some so-called bright manager 
you know, at a major mutual fund company, Fidelity, you know, uh, T. Rowe Price, American Funds, uh, et cetera. Well, the problem was, you know, at, at 21, I'd start building portfolios for clients. Let's say I had a doctor with a $500,000 portfolio. Right. And um, I would allocate, I would try to add diversification using modern portfolio theory. Then I'd use these active managers. And then three to five years after picking the manager, 75 to 80% of them, sometimes more, Wouldn't hadn't even kept up with the market itself. Right. So they were dramatically underperforming the market. Right. And it was a br brutal thing trying to help people plan for their American dream to watch that devastation over and over and over again. Right. So when I decided to leave the commission world in 1991, formed my own RIA, the RIA Matson Money Today, um, I knew there had to be a different answer. Right. And I ha uh, attended a debate in, um, in um, San Francisco with Rex Singfeld and Donald Yachman. And Donald Yachman was the proactive management. And Rex Singfeld talked about efficient market theory and how to use structured funds to get market returns eliminating stock picking, market timing, and track record investing. And that just blew me away. No, um, and from that point on, I vowed to, to never again do any of those three destructive forms of investing. So I guess the best way to, do, to describe our philosophy today is uh, based on two main Nobel Prize winning theories, one efficient market theory. Uh, the, the second is modern portfolio theory developed by Harry Markowitz. Uh, Harry Markowitz is on our academic board uh, uh, Eugene Fama, who I've been, uh, I've interviewed and, and, uh, have known for over 20 years, uh, with efficient market theory. Uh, and then, you know, it's an algorithm and then how to build portfolios today. Our clients that have equities have 21,000 holdings that have fixed income, uh, in over 80 different countries, uh, that opera have business operations. So it's very diversified global, uh, and it's, uh, based on modern portfolio theory and efficient market theory. Nice. So if you can just help uh, explain both of those in layman terms for the audience, in case anyone's not aware of those terms, please feel free if you don't mind. Yeah, great. Yeah, it's great. So efficient market theory is based on the ba basic premise of capitalism, which is free markets work. The best determinant of price is based on free markets and supply and demand. And so when you look at a price of a stock, ABC stock, let's say, uh, based on efficient market theory, all the knowable and predictable information about today and the future is already, is already priced into the stock based on free market supply and demand. Therefore, the current price is the best price, and it's a fool's errand to try to stock pick in market time and get in and out of stocks uh, based on what you think is going to happen in the future. It's, only, it's basically a guess, and no one should base their portfolio and their retirement and their dreams based on a guess. So what do you do? Well, first you eliminate stock picking. So if I wanted to have, let's say, U.S. large stocks, I would just use the S&P 500. Right. If I wanted micro cap stocks, I'd have to find something you know more exotic, an ETF or a or an index fund that traded in that segment of the market. And then I would eliminate all of the speculating and buying and selling and trading inside of that sector of the fund. Okay. Um, so it basically tells you to don't use track record investing, don't use timing, don't use so-called brilliant managers from the past. And what you want to do is focus on getting market returns for each and every sector of your portfolio. Right. That's number one. And then modern portfolio theory says that, which Harry Markowitz did the initial studies in the 50s, 
And then would many, many decades later win the Nobel Prize for it, they didn't even have the computer power to, to actually run the test on it at the time when he invented it. Right. Um, but basically what it does is a tool to understand diversification. And the idea is you can take the expected rates of returns for various sectors of your portfolio or asset, asset classes in your portfolio. Right. And then you can look at the standard deviation or the volatility. And you can look at the long-term expected returns based on risk of that asset category. And then you could seek to have asset categories that have dissimilar price movement. So they're not going up and down in you know, step rate fashion and they're offsetting each other in risk. Right. And if you can do that, then you can do two things. You can increase the long-term expected return of the portfolio and reduce the short-term volatility. Gotcha. And so you can take both of those things, efficient market theory and modern portfolio theory, and you combine them together um, into, we call it the Matson method. Um, and, and that lays the foundation for how you build a portfolio. Oh, that's nice. So you blend both together and you look for non-correlated assets and then their expected returns. So if gold and stocks, for example, or gold and bonds or whatever the case may be, um, are not correlated and that you have certain expected returns based on what they've done in the past, so to speak, then you'll build a diversified portfolio based on your method. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. So, if you wanted to look at, yeah, yeah. That, that's, a, that's, that's, that's exactly what we do. Yep. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Next <Yeah>. question. <laughs> And we, we spent two whole days educating people how that works. So uh, it's, it's good to get it into a soundbite. So it's sometimes a challenge. No, I've been in the business and professionally for over 20 years since the 90s. And I, I can, yeah, I, I follow you. I follow, I smell what you're cooking. So let me ask you this question, Mark. How do you handle risk? And then what mistakes do you see people make with respect to risk management? Okay, brilliant. Yeah. So one of the, first of all, the way that we measure risk is standard deviation. Okay. And then we'll go back and we'll show investors based on certain mixes of assets, uh, how much could you lose, you know, right. and, and stress test portfolios to say, okay, you know, if you lost, you know, if you have $3 million and you lost 20% of it, you know, could you stomach it? Yeah. You know, and for investors, you, you know, you have to put it usually in a dollar amount because 20% it doesn't sound that terrible. But if you say, look, you just look, opened your statement and you just saw that you're down $600,000, right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, now, you know, now how do you feel? Right. You know, and you, all the news and all the cable and all the internet and there's terrible stuff going on and there's recessions and pandemics and, you know, could you actually stomach it? Right. Uh, I found that questionnaires, a lot, a lot of advisors use questionnaires. I think that they're far too simplistic. Uh, they don't capture the real emotion and or instinctive response of, uh, uh, of investors. And I think that you have to be much more careful and have a process of asking the right questions so they can really get in contact with how much uh, risk that they can handle. Uh, but we use standard deviation as a starting point mm -hmm. and then stress test portfolios and look at how bad it could actually get historically and could they stomach it. Uh, and then if they can't, then what we have to do is we have, we, we believe almost every investor should have some equities, right. um, but to the extent that they can't take a full equity risk and most, most clients really can't take a hundred percent equity risk because uh, that is a lot of standard deviation. Um, then we use short-term high quality fixed income. Two of the major mistakes I see people making right now. Number one is the same mistakes that they made in 2000, right. which was, they're loading up on tech stocks. They're right. loading up on large U.S. growth stocks. 
In the 2000s, tech stocks lost 75% of their value overnight. Yeah. Large U.S. stocks lost over 50. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't come back for a whole decade. They would no. have zero returns, some prognosticators called the dead decade. Let's yeah. just say it was very, very bad. Uh, and, and they're ignoring things like emerging markets, small stocks, microcap stocks, value stocks. And those are the asset categories that did quite well in that period of time mm -hmm. to offset the risk of having all the money just enlarged in tech. And people heard, they, they follow their instincts and their emotions. They end up hurting up. It's actually an investing bias. Right. Uh, and then they follow other investors right over the cliff. So one of the, one of the problems is they're not diversifying properly with, and they're using all large and uh, international, excuse me, large and uh, ignoring international and using yeah. tech. Exactly. The second is that they're cheating out on the yield curve with their bonds. Okay. So the problem with that is that the more, right now, since interest rates are so low, many investors are, instead of having two or three or four year bonds, five year, they're out, out 15, 20 year, 10. Right. Well, as interest rates go back up, you're going to get those long-term bonds get absolutely destroyed. Right. And you can see a situation where you have a market collapse or a crash at the same time. You have interest rates start to go up. Your bonds crash at the same time. Uh, so to extending the maturity of your bonds is a big mistake, adds risk without real return. Yeah. And then the other part is junk bonds. You see a lot of people, of course, you know, brokers call them high yield. But right. The reality is they're junk and they have a default rate yeah. in general of about 10%. So junk bonds, high yield bonds, um, longer term bonds, and then loading up on uh, S&P and tech, all of those are big mistakes right now. No, that's great. So I, to your earlier point about people not understanding percentages, but they understand dollars, I have a book coming out called Psychological Analysis for Investing. And one of my big things is that people are emotionally attached to their money, so they can't make objective decisions. And when you think in percentage terms, that's one way of removing the emotion from the equation. So that speaks to your point where you think in dollar terms, oh my God, 600,000 or 20,000 or whatever the case may be, it's now quote unquote real, but nobody's emotionally attached to a 2% decline or a 10% drawdown or whatever the case may be. So I fully understand what you're saying and it's so true to human nature. And it's, it's difficult, I think it's brilliant. And um, it's difficult for people to understand being in a hot state. So you could say, you know, how would you feel if you lost 20%? Right. Well, if it, you've just come off of three or four or five years of high market returns, you know, thinking, oh, it's, I could take it. I know it'll come back. It's not that bad. <clears throat> but then when you add on, oh, wait a minute, it's, it's a pandemic and there's tariffs and there's wars and there's, you know, contested elections and there's whatever the headline fear. du jour is, it doesn't matter, right? There's always yeah. a headline, right? Yeah. And that exacerbates their feeling and right. reduces their ability to, to handle risk. Right. And it's difficult for human beings to imagine what that hot state feels like. Human beings are terrible judges of risk. They're terrible judges of understanding their own behavior. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Personal blind spot bias, right? Yeah, and, there, yeah. There, and there's hindsight bias, there's um, yeah. hurting bias, there's emotional bias, and then there's instincts. The instincts are to run towards things that are high and away from things that are dropped because they're painful. Right. And, you know, I was, I'm getting a, doing a presentation today. I just put together the research. There's over a, a, a hundred billion cells in the, in the human brain. Wow. And two, excuse me, and a hundred trillion connections between those brain cells with synapses. 
Wow. And people think that they make conscious, reasoned decisions. No. But, you know, Dr. Mayor Statman, who's on our academic board at Santa Clara University, um, will tell you, as most behavioral economists will, that most of your decisions, even important ones like investing, are made at a subconscious level and not at a conscious level. That's and our, and what my happens book. is we actually make a decision yeah. subconsciously Yep. Then we look for rationalization using the cognitive part of our brain. Yep. And then we go ahead and make whatever decision we were going to make yeah. uh, based on our emotions, right. instincts, and perceptions. And it's, it's devastating for investors. It's absolutely devastating. I couldn't agree but, more. And yeah. it's, not just, it's not just investors, because I know you have two audiences here. Advisors do the exact same thing especially when, you know, they're looking at their block of business. Let's say you own, you manage hundred million, 200 million, the market goes down. So you're down, I don't know, 250, 250 million in assets. And then you have a client come in with 10 million and they demand you sell the thing that's low and buy more of the thing that's high, or they're going to move their money. My experience is most advisors will do it and they do it to keep the money, even though it hurts the client. So it's not just a client problem. Yeah, they're people, right? At the end of the day, advisors are advisors. <laughs> right. So, yeah, no, we're actually, look, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, well, they're, they're looking at more than just their portfolio going down. They built a lifestyle. Right. <clears throat> Houses, cars, <clears throat> country clubs, kids' college, whatever it is. Yeah. Now their income goes down because the market's down, and then they get threatened with a couple clients leaving. Yep. And so they're, they just revert to doing all the hindsight biases and all of the confirmation bias and all that stuff. They just revert to that um, just like any other human being. Yeah, no, actually, Mark, it's surprisingly <clears throat> refreshing what you're saying because that's the premise of my book. It's that there's two kinds of circles. Think of like the Venn diagram. There's a smart money circle, which is where we are here. And then everybody else is in the dumb money circle, pardon the use of the word dumb there. But I don't know how else to word it. And my whole, my research shows that it's the exact same thing. People, human nature never changes, right? You walk into a crowded theater, yell fire, you get the same response. Bubbles, asset classes have gone up and then you have the bus that go down for centuries. Human nature never changes, irrespective of their language, their race, their education, their socioeconomic background, so on and so forth. And to your point about the subconscious mind controlling their decisions, my whole point here, or one of the points is that you wanna consciously regain control of your decision-making process. Otherwise, you're gonna have the confirmation bias like you talked about where you already made up your mind because you like something, and then you look for information to justify that purchase, right? Or whatever the case may, or that behavior. So I, I really, really, um, it's interesting, we've never met before, but it's, our, it's a lot of parallels there. So yeah, um, the next question for you, Mark, what are some timeless lessons you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, <clears throat> times, times, so I think one of the timeless lessons is that you're not just managing, as you said, Adam, you're not just managing for portfolio design and rebalancing. Uh, one of the timeless lessons is you got to have someone that manages, helps you coach you and manage your behavior because it's just like a diet. Somebody could put in writing, here's what you got to do in the next 30 days to lose 15 pounds right. and you'll be back at your high school playing weight, you know, and here's the workout you do every morning and here's what you eat for the day. And if you follow it for 30 days, you'll, you, you'll lose 15 pounds. It's science. It works. Problem is most people won't do it. And most people will, and, and think about the risk of not doing it. Right. Heart attacks, obesity, cancer. Uh, I mean, the, the, the health risks 
you know, go on and on and on and on, and yet still human beings won't do it. There's a study, uh, there's a book out called uh, Change or Die, and they track heart patients that have had heart attacks, and they tell them, you got to do this, 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 and this, and 90% of the patients don't change. Even when they say you're going to die if you don't change. Absolutely bonkers, Mark. Absolutely bonkers. And investors are are no are no different, you know. And I'm not I'm not pointing fingers, you know. I eat pizza and you know ice cream's great, uh, but, and I'm not at my high school playing weight. But I do have a gift for some reason when it comes to staying disciplined around money. Uh, so the rules theoretically diversify, own equities, eliminate active management, rebalance. They're in theory at a thirty-five thousand level. They're simple but they're darn near impossible to actually follow. And so when, when, there's, a, when there's something like that, you know, it's, it's critical to have a coach who can see what's happening, who is not going to be sucked in and has a long track record of not getting sucked in, uh, and then is, is going to be able to help me manage not just my portfolio, but my actual behavior and acknowledge that without that coach, I'm going to self-implode and to actually kind of let go of the wheel and then and let somebody else control it. And that's really hard for investors to do. Yeah, it's hard yeah. for them to do, and it's hard for them to find a person that can actually do it. I would also recommend people, investors use an, an, adva- an advisor with GIPS audited returns. Um, the Global Investment Protective uh, Protection Standards or Performance Standards rather. Um, vast majority of investors have invested with RIAs that have no audited returns. It makes absolutely no sense. Investors also need to protect themselves from fraud. Running an RIA is one of the easiest ways to defraud people in Ponzi schemes. Right. So they need three things. They need audited financial statements from a third party mm-hmm. that are validated from the RIA that you're working with. If you're working with an RIA, mm-hmm. they need audited GIPS returns to prove that they've actually generated anything other than uh, simulated fake returns. Right. Uh, and then they need to make sure that there's a third-party custodian, uh, that the advisor does not actually have custody. Uh, the Madoff victims found out that one really hard uh, where he actually had custody and there was not a third-party custodian. That's huge. So those are some of the things to look for. Yeah, you know, to your earlier point about losing weight and money, I the way that I word it, it's a simple formula. It's not easy. I agree with you. Calories in versus calories out, right? But most people are overweight. It's simple, but it's not easy. Same thing with money. Cash flow in versus cash flow out. People tell me all the time, oh, I wish I could make more money. I wish I could make more money. I'm like, no, you don't. You make 10 million a year. You spend 11. You're still minus one, right? So it's, it's, it's a simple formula, but the execution of it is where the magic happens. And I couldn't agree with you more. So Mark, outside of those lessons, um, what are some timeless mistakes that we haven't already touched upon that you see people make? Maybe is it, is it overtrading or so how, what are some mistakes that you see people make that you'd like to help them avoid? Yeah, I think one of the uh, failures is once you've created the risk return preference of your portfolio, the next problem is staying disciplined. Right. So the discipline, failure to have discipline is, is one of the worst things that I see. Uh, and what it requires of an investor is, is a form of courage. 
Right. So for example, you look at the beginning of this year, let's say you have an investor with a 50-50 portfolio, 50% fixed income, high quality, short-term, low volatility, and then 50% equities. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning of the year, ballpark, small, small value, international, ballpark, uh, down 40% through the uh, March. Right. And very few investors, very few, will have the courage to sell their fixed income when that's down 40% and buy more of it while it's down. Right. In fact, I've never met an actual investor that can do it on their own. Every time successfully, right. Yeah. yeah, most investors will do the opposite. They'll want to sell the thing that's down 40%. Then look look what's happened since the low. I think it was low is 323. Uh, small value stocks are up almost over, well, not almost, their small values up over 75%. It's huge. So if you had the courage to rebalance, sell the fixed income, buy more of the asset categories that were down, mm -hmm. you gave yourself a massive you know, return uh, through the latter uh, two thirds, three quarters of the year. Now you got to force yourself to do the opposite. Now you got to sell the thing that was up 75%. And right. sell off the excess and buy more fixed income while it's down. And that kind of discipline is, is actually a form of courage because you have to feel the most people think that courage is the absence of fear. Not true. Courage means feel the fear and do the right thing anyway. Yep. And so people often wait to have the right feeling right. to get in the market or the right feeling to buy something that's distressed or so forth. So uh, the, it's not going to feel, I got news for people. It's not going to feel good. Not at Prudent long-term investing is not a feel good, you know, care bears and butterflies and unicorns kind of thing. It takes guts and courage and discipline, which are uh, not easily uh, achieved today, especially in a world where everything's fast and, you know, instant and, and transactional. Um, I think one of the other, I wanted to add to Adam, one of the other mistakes I do see people making is I see people putting things in their portfolios that actually are, have no expected long-term value. Um, and, and a lot of these are in the forms of commodities. Okay. So for example, gold has a low correlation with stocks, but you need more than just a low correlation to be something that you add to the portfolio. You need low correlation and you need high expected return. You know, the right. return of gold historically is 4%. It's barely 1% over inflation, but the standard deviation is 20%. So you have something with extremely low return, extremely high volatility. Yeah. So instead of putting my money in gold, I'd be much better off if I really want to hedge against inflation, hedge against volatility from stocks to have short-term high-quality income. The mm. same thing can be said of uh, Bitcoin, uh, gold, silver, uh, uh, one of the things, you know, alternatives, people, oh, I want to put alternatives in there. Right. Well, it's sexy, but it's destructive. Uh, and I tell investors, I said, there is no alternative to prudent investing. And these things do not have a proven academic return uh, right. commiserate with the volatility you must take. Got it. No, that makes perfect sense. So, um, Mark, what advice would you give? And you started, luckily, you started very young in the business and on this path, but what advice would you give to your 20 year old self, 30 year old self, or just a younger version of yourself for anyone <laughs> who's younger listening today? 
Yeah, well, my I, one of the messages I have, I was really fortunate that my dad was in the business and he was always my best coach. And he told me that if you pay yourself first, mm-hmm. so if you're a millennial, you got that first job or the second job or third job or whatever it is, and you're looking at twenty or thirty thousand dollars of student loans, and the tendency will be, you know, gosh, you know, I got to pay these loans off and. You know, I got these other expenses and I'm young. I can wait to actually invest. And my advice is don't wait to invest. Pay yourself first. Right. It's never going to be easy to invest. Right. Like you, like you said, even if you're making $10 million, right? Yeah, believe, it, believe it or not, it's easy to spend $10 million. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, and uh, so you say, well, what, how do I do this? Well, you take 10% of what you're making. If you have a 401k, great, use that to start off, but take another three, four, five percent and then just automatically have it come out of your checking account every month and then have it automatically go into just maybe a, an index fund, an S&P or something simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then start to grow your wealth and don't wait. Those credit cards will get paid off. Those loans will get paid off. But if you start now and, and if you'll just save 10% of all the money that you ever make, when you retire, you'll have, you know, if you have a good solid rate of return, you'll, you know, have basically every dollar you ever made still uh, available for your retirement because of the growth. So, so start starter, now, don't wait. That's, that's a great point. And then what about from an, a, a um, an behavioral standpoint, since we both are very much aligned with that understanding or that nugget of wisdom, that it really matters, the quality of your decisions really matter and determines the success you have in life. Any nuggets of wisdom you can share with the audience of somebody who's, who knows they should be doing X, Y, Z, the proverbial sit-ups, if you will, or whatever the case may be, and how to actually implement it. Like, I know I should be waking up and doing the sit-ups or reading the book or picking up the phone and call, whatever the thing is or things are. Uh, how do you actually get over that hump and do it? <laughs> That's great. Boy, I wish I, could, I wish I could write a book about that. I'd sell a million copies. Seriously. Um, <laughs> how do you get yourself motivated when you don't feel like doing it? I, I think one of the things that you got to do is come to terms with the impact. What's the impact of not doing it? That's brilliant. Yeah. So powerful. And if, and, and if I can get like, I got a purpose in my life. Yeah. Right. And that's one of we have this thing called the American Dream Experience. It's a two-day workshop where we help people create freedom, fulfillment, and love in their family uh, and use money as an access to that and their relationship to money. So if I can get a purpose, in, and it starts with purpose. So if I can get a purpose in my life that's big enough to help me stop speculating and gambling with my money. Right. Then I have a reason not to gamble it because for most people, the default position for money is just to get more money. Right. But if I can get a true purpose for it, then I can look at the impact. Well, I lost $200,000. Oh yeah. But I, I, you know, it's not that much money, you know, that was just one stock. And, but then I can get in touch with the impact. Let's say my true purpose for money is, is love. Right. Well, that $200,000 could have saved, you know, X amount of children from sex slavery. Right. Or there's 14,000 people that die every day from starvation. I could have saved 30 children from starvation that day. I mean, what what is the real impact of me not doing the setups and me not getting up at five in the morning and getting my workout in? Right. Well, I'm going to give up years 
I'm going to have a bad quality of life. I'm going to get disease. Yep. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm talking to myself right now. I, I'm a cyclist. I do a lot of cycling. <laughs> talking to all of us, right? The, right. Last, the last Thanksgiving's been brutal there, madam. Um, so, you know, I got to get up and get moving. I got eight kids. Right. I got to wow. be around for these kids. God bless. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, I think that's the key is the part of the key is getting, is looking at what happens if I don't do the behavior yeah. and what is the impact on my life and other people that I care about. Yeah. And that can get you moving in the right direction. I think. Yeah. That's very powerful. The purpose is really huge. I love that. So um, I guess Mark, a few more questions for you. You said pay yourself first. Mark Cuban's come out and said, hey, pay your credit cards off because you instantly get an 18% return or whatever the crazy APRs are that they're charging with interest. How do you reconcile those two points? Well, he's wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think Mark Cuban probably doesn't have a very good connection with what it is to make $30,000 a year or $50,000 a year. Uh, all respected Mark Cuban. Uh, look, I find that people have a certain comfort level with debt. Yeah, okay, so you pay off the credit card first. Yeah, but what happens next year when you want to go to uh, Bora Bora? Right. You just crank it back up again. That's it, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, you might have, I don't know how much debt people have. Yeah, is it a good idea to be debt-free? Yeah, you should, you should pretty much spend cash uh, or at least use your credit card and pay it off the same month. Um, and that's a much better healthy standpoint in life, but I've seen people put it off, put off putting that 300 a month or 500 a month away because they say, well, they just use their credit cards as an excuse. Well, I can't do it. I got credit cards. Yeah. You know, I can't do it. I still owe money in my house. But they keep spending. Exactly. Yeah. They just keep spending anyway. Yeah. So I, I, so I, I think he's wrong on this one. Got it. No, that's a really good answer because you're going to, like you said, they get comfortable in the uncomfortable, right? They have debt. They're comfortable with the debt. Let's just have more debt and so on and so forth. But if you actually take the time to create those healthy financial habits of investing and paying yourself first, you're going to be doing that anyway. And 10% of your income is not going to take out your debt. So it doesn't matter, but that's a very, very good point on your part. So if you had um, the other question people write in all the time and ask me is if you had a small amount of money, 10 grand or 50 grand or whatever it is, how would you invest it now? What would you be doing with it to get started no matter what age you are? Yeah. So I, I think people need to keep in mind, it's easy to convince people now because markets have done so good over the last eight years, but I, I think it's important for people to keep in mind that um, equities are the greatest wealth creation tool on the planet. Right. Now you'll hear people say, oh, you have a gold or Bitcoin or real estate or whatever. Uh, the equities are the greatest wealth creation tool on the planet for three reasons. Number one, they create all the amazing stuff that we know and love. You got an iPhone in your pocket. You believe in capitalism. <laughs> That's only created because of free markets and capital markets. When you buy stock or an S and P 500, you're, you know, helping Apple make iPhones. That's it. Right. So all the cool stuff comes from capitalism. Number two, all the jobs. My job, your job, all these wonderful jobs that we all love, you know, and before COVID was down to all time, almost an all time low unemployment rate. Um, and then finally, the amazingly high returns. Yeah. Historically, uh, large U.S. stocks measured by the S&P at 10 percent, uh, micro cap stocks in the U.S. at close to 12 percent, small value stocks 
uh, a ballpark of 14% historically. Yeah. So I mean, these are just incredible returns. So when you look at all the amazing stuff and the quality of life, all the jobs and wealth creation of the income, including the government jobs, right. there is no government without capitalism, right. uh, or at least a crappy government uh, without capitalism. And then finally you have, you know, you have all the returns. So, and then I would instill with the, in them, you know, young people, e even more important than a belief, belief in just in markets is a, be a belief in free enterprise. Yeah. A belief yeah. in the values that created this great country as implicit in the bill of rights. Uh, and two, two sets of freedoms, technology, innovation, and science partnered with private property and free markets created by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights right. create entrepreneurism. And to be completely 100% accountable, no one owes you anything in life you don't create yourself. Right. And a belief in individualism and hard work and innovation and come to work every day understanding that no one owes you nothing. Right. And if you can, if you can bring that to your life, that will probably be more of a wealth creator than any other wisdom I could probably give, give to anybody. No, that's awesome. That's excellent. So um, we know psychology plays a really big role with money and investing. We spoke on some really good points today. Do you have any other thoughts on how psychology impacts not only decision-making, but just investing and, and money in general? <clears throat> I think there's two basic ways people can see the world. Some people see... Uh, and, and they break down into two, two areas. One is scarcity and one is abundance. Mm -hmm. And so if you see the world as scarce, opportunity is scarce, money is scarce, um, then you start, it starts to color everything, whether that's your job, your relationships, your investing, uh, and life becomes a struggle. Right. Uh, on the other hand, how the world, if the world occurs to you, as like my dad built into me, that the world is full of opportunities, full of wealth. You know, when you get it next time you're in an airplane, you're flying over a major city, just look down and look at all the wealth. Yeah, I mean, there's great. massive, massive amounts of wealth. Spirit of opulence. Uh, it's just the, the, the wealth and the money and the, uh, and the opportunities. And, and so looking at the world uh, as abundant and full of opportunities. And then the other one is, is a, a, a perspective of gratitude. Look, if you go back 500 years, just 500 years, and you're the richest person on the planet. Nothing, yeah. Let's say the Pope or the King of England, let's say. Right. You got no ice cream. You got no air conditioning. You no have cars. no internet. You no got no penicillin. Yeah. Oh, you get an appendicitis, you're dead. Toasty. You get a scratch from a limb that gets infected. Oh, you're dead. Yeah. No IVs. Nothing. Talk about pandemics. Three, three quarters of Europe dies from the Black right. Plague. <laughs> I mean, you if you make $50,000 a year right now, you live better, your, your quality, your standard of life, yeah. than the richest person on the planet just 500 years ago. And most people alive today. <laughs> well, good point. Thank you. Great point. <laughs> and most people alive on the planet today. Very good point. That's right. So, you know, give it some gratitude and perspective about just how great this country is and just how wonderful the opportunities and the technology and the quality of life we have. Yeah. 
I think it goes a long way for people. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Mark, um, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. This has been an absolute delight. Thank, thank you, so you much. much. My pleasure. Hey, thanks so much, Adam. Anytime, buddy. My pleasure. Thank you. You got it. Good luck well, on your book. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, can't wait to get a copy. All right. Sounds great. You got it. Yeah, Mark. Bye-bye.